Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome, listeners, to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I am psyched. I am pumped. I am high on topical steroids. How are you? Good. It is family day, and I'm glad we get to spend this family day with our with our board gaming family here Aww. in the United States of America. It is President's Day. Is it? It is. And I'm I sure, see. I'm sure they love their president like a family member. No, no, no. I think this is President's Day like for past presidents because uh, it used to be Lincoln's birthday and Washington's birthday. There used to be separate holidays and then I think I, they merged them. It's weird that they had their birthdays on the same day. But No, that is not what happened. <laughs> they merged them as part of the United States' relentless quest to have as few federal holidays as possible and to only grudgingly give people days off. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Besides politics, we're also going to talk about... That wasn't a political statement. (laughs) I'm just joking. We're also (laughs) going to talk about board games. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. And what a game it is. What a game. And then we're going to talk about the games that we played this week. Then we're going to talk about some news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our topic of the week, which is game design trends. Mark, exactly one year ago, we reviewed a Rhino Knizia game called Whale Riders. We have a policy here, an informal policy between Walker and myself, because in our group, we are definitely the ones that acquire games. And roughly about a year and a half to two years ago, we stopped getting games that the other one had. But then there are exceptions. <laughs> I bought a copy of Whale Riders at full retail price. Uh, after we did the review on Walker's copy, I, I was like, okay, Walker's got a copy. We, we have this policy. 
and then I just I couldn't maintain it. I just couldn't keep it up. Well Riders is one of those times where I really think our initial impressions were right. I have played Well Riders about half a dozen times since we reviewed it because it is so immensely flexible. Non non hobbyist gamers, no problem. Experienced gamers, they love it too. Ho- knee deep hobbyist gamers, absolutely. People who hate Knizia, people who love Knizia. I mean. Whale Riders is an absolute winner. I think we were right to identify it as such right from the outset, and it's aged like fine wine over the course of the past two years. I'm a huge fan, and it's a shame that it's not in print. This yeah. should be a, this should be in every mass market shelf in America. It got published by an unfortunate publisher, but that's yes. okay. Hopefully, we'll see it again someday. It's very easily teachable, has an interesting theme that people can get right behind immediately. You're actually riding these giant whales. And beautiful Vincent Dutré art. It's true, and you have these uh, uh, whale meeples. Weeples? Whale pulls? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll workshop that. And uh, it's a great game. It's so good. I Every time I play it, just the tension and trade-offs, and those are the kinds of things that I love, especially in simple, relatively straightforward Euro games like this. The feeling pulled in lots of different directions, but having to make some trade-offs and some risks. And I am a huge fan of Whale Riders. I'm very glad that I picked up my own copy, and so now I can play it whenever I want to. It's true. And that is the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you get to play this week? I played a game called God Tier. I first talked about this a few years ago because I played a starter set. God Tier is a game published by Steamforged Games, and it's uh, sort of a two-player skirmishy thing. And the starter set for God here is a throwback to old-style tabletop miniatures game starters, which is to say, you can technically play something resembling a game with what's inside this box, but nothing that actually resembles the actual game with the, inside this box. In God here, really what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to have three factions against three factions, and the starter set contains two factions. And I played it with Chip the Third a, a whole bunch of years ago, and it's like, yeah, there's not much here. I can't really talk about the game because it, it ain't there. And people are like, how dare you not review it in its fullness? And it's like, no, I'm I'm not going to buy six faction boxes total to be able to get the full God tier experience when I'm so offended with the distribution model. So I got it in trade. <laughs> Suffice to say, I figured, well, I'd be vaguely curious, especially since lately a number of critics, particularly Charlie Thiel, have been really talking about how, how enthusiastic they are about God tier. So I got it to the table again. It's better with three on three factions. But it feels a little constrained, actually, with three factions, because the movement the movement rules are actually very confining in a number of ways. Not confining the way Shadespire is confining. Warhammer Underworlds is confining in the sense that if you move somebody, they're going to be stuck there for the rest of the round. That I really enjoyed. But in the sense of God here, people just get clumped up together, and the movement restrictions are pretty striking. And so on a number of occasions, the territory control was determined more by just bottling up choke points than anything else. And that was potentially interesting, but it didn't, I didn't find it nearly as satisfying as I would have hoped. Uh, you do get some interesting combinatoric aspects with, okay, I'm going to use this faction special power to buff this other faction. I had one champion who was incredibly deadly, but had a movement rating of one. And so I had to use another faction to help him move a whole space. And so every time I had the champion move, I go, Ugh! and eventually he got to the middle of the board and started raining down destruction and chaos upon all who befell him. And so that was vaguely satisfying. But all told, in terms of the amount of money you need to get started in God Tier, 
And in terms of the amount of game you get once you're there, I wasn't that impressed. I mean, there's a lot of other alternatives in the two-player fighty genre. I mean, Sakura Arms at least starts getting into that, and other two-player card battlers, I think, are also good competition for something along the lines of God Tier. If you want to play a two-player game with miniatures, I mean, any one of the two-player MOBA-inspired games I think would be good. I'd much rather play Battle for Baternia, which is a cheap and cheerful box. Anyway. The giant, think- the giant miniature one. Gatefall. Gatefall. Yes, and there's some expansion content that we haven't tried yet. Yeah, Gatefall's good too. There's a lot of competition there, and the amount of money they want for the factions, and you don't even get as much variety as I'd like. I, like I, I'm sitting there, and I've got six different cards of units with special abilities, but at the end of the day, a lot of them are about, well, this attack rolls five dice to hit and seven dice to damage, and this attack rolls four dice to hit and eight dice for damage. I'm like, okay, great. So <laughs> Played with the numbers a bit. Yeah, it was enjoyable. It was fine. I'll pl- look. I'll play any two-player skirmishy thing. But honestly, I was a bit let down based on the enthusiasm that other people have reported with God Tier and the amount of perceived effort necessary to get a full game going. I'd play it again, but I don't think I'd suggest it, especially given that the competition for two-player skirmish-type games is very, very, very high. And honestly, the way Steamforge Games distributes things is generally a nightmare, so I'm I'm eager not to have too much contact with that company. So is it closer to a miniature game, or is it closer to a board game, do you think? It's closer to a miniature game. It's It's a miniature skirmish board game. Uh, It doesn't have the same sense of tabletop minis games of the full range of analog movement and of the genuine variety of powers that you can have. But it's definitely not a board game with miniatures in terms of while you're actually doing worker placement or you're actually doing auctions. You know, it it feels a lot like uh, it's kind of in the same mold as HeroScape, suffice to say, kind of bridging the gap. It sounds less collectible, too. It looks like you, you buy what you need and then you're kind of done. In well, a way. It depends. I mean, they sell the factions individually, and each faction is reasonably expensive, and it can consist of anywhere from two to sometimes as many as seven or eight miniatures. I don't feel like you're getting a tremendous bang for your buck, again, in terms of faction variety or in terms of the quality of the miniatures themselves. Uh, but I could definitely perceive, if I had access to more factions for free... I would enjoy tinkering with army composition, possibly, but as it stands in the way that it's distributed, I'm not inclined to do so, ultimately. And so that's my further experiences with God Tier. A bit of a disappointment by Steamforge Games. Speaking of kind of miniature games, we got to play Aliens, Another Glorious Day in the Core. This is designed by Andrew Hott and put out by Gale Force 9. It is yet another game based off of the Aliens with an S franchise. You play the core they let they put you through the different missions based on the movie itself and or ripley and or burke and or true enough <laughs> we had someone brave enough to take burke <laughs> burke was the mvp actually that's true <laughs> and and it is a game that's based around uh modifying no, i shouldn't say modifying but sort of manipulating a single deck of cards yes you're going, to, you're going to be reducing it for shooting and moving and drawing and all sorts of different things are going to happen to this deck because you don't want it to run out stuff like that so like someone had said, it sort of takes the tension away from where the tension should be, which is on the board and the aliens attacking you and focuses it on this deck, which sort of makes the game not as fun as I think it could have been. I agree 100%. You should be afraid of the alien that's going to charge you this round, not afraid that the deck is going to run out and you're going to lose of exhaustion. It drains the tension out, and I've maintained from the beginning of playing Aliens of the Glorious Day in the Core, the aliens aren't nearly deadly enough. Burke killed an alien in hand-to-hand combat. 
Yeah, this is the same. What pro- the hell? What? <laughs> this is the same problem they had with the Starship Troopers game. Oh, yeah? Where every time an alien moved, you get to have reactive fire. And by that case, they never got close to you. Same in this mm. game. As soon as an alien attacks, everyone within four spaces gets a chance to kill that alien. Yes, and the so only- it never gets to do anything. The only trade-off wasn't- do I want to take this shot or can I put myself in a position to take the shot? The only trade-off was, can I afford to exhaust the deck enough to take this shot? Which I rep- I understand what they're trying to go for. Some combination of limited ammo slash exhaustion slash terror. I don't know. But it doesn't feel like it's actually representing anything. And it doesn't feel remotely satisfying or remotely thematic. And as a consequence, the board play, the actual conflict with the aliens, feels borderline trivial, which makes it feel even further removed from the source material. Which is too bad. There is a lot of good things to like about this game. You have an aim dial. Every time you shoot, it goes down. You have this interesting uh, armor system where depending on what you roll, you either, you know, you block it or you actually do damage back or you get to gear your Marines up at the beginning. All sorts of interesting things. Yeah, if if they'd tweaked what the cards represented and made the aliens more deadly, then I think there could have been some really something here. As it is, the leading contender for best aliens game remains the MVP, the 1989 Leading Edge Hobbies incredibly badly produced but nonetheless satisfying kill-a-thon, Aliens. It's true. Where well, everyone dies. Well, if, it's, if you want to go by exact name, but uh, Space Hulk, which is obviously a direct uh, comparison. Space Hulk is a better game, but... Yes. Uh, Aliens is a better adaptation of the actual movie. I mean, yes, the inspiration for Aliens is transparently evident in Space Hulk, but it feels sufficiently different in a number of of respects. I I guess that's a grudging compliment to Games Workshop, I suppose. Yes, the the Leading Edge Hobbies game, which was a very, very early solo-slash-co-op kind of game along those ilk, uh, and it was definitely ahead of its time in a number of ways, very much of its time in others, but nonetheless gave you the satisfying feeling of uh, the fact that everyone's going to die, especially Burke. Yep, production is great. Miniatures are odd. The Marines are fine. Aliens are a little bit sporadic. Like, their tentacles go out in all sorts of di- different directions, which sort of makes them unmanageable, but yes. still highly paintable. So if you enjoy the the movie as much as we do and enjoy collecting miniatures and painting, it could be something that is up your alley, but for well, the, the gameplay... They do a solid effort for tying the property in to the actual game. A whole bunch of cards refer back to specific instances in the movie and a whole there there are quotes aplenty across every possible component which is great because aliens is an eminently quotable film if you're enthusiastic about it and so ultimately again that that the fact that there's not really much tension in the actual gameplay is so crushingly disappointing as far as I'm yeah concerned. it's not as though it's a, a movie still with with the quote and then the the gameplay does something completely different. It's it's that card will do something that's sort of tied in to right. that, that whole scene. Right, right. And the characters feel appropriate. You know, uh, Hudson wants a motion, tr- motion tracker. Uh, Drake and Vasquez want auto guns. You know, subtle flourishes like that. And so, yeah. Disappointing. I played it before uh, when it first came out. Strangely enough, the timing is odd because just as uh, people in the group requested to play it and just as I started suggesting it again because I thought it would fit and people wanted to give it a shot, the second edition of the rules came out with very, very, very subtle rules modifications. Uh, Pro tip, by the way, to Gale Force 9 or anybody else, if you're going to release a second edition of a rules document, please include a change log. Please let people know what it is, because if you know how the game works, it can be easy to just gloss over the differences. I found it very difficult to find the specific differences in the rule set. We ended up playing 
with the second edition rule set. And it's actually easier than the, <laughs> than the first edition in a couple of subtle ways. But overall, the changes are largely for the good. It's not so we we cleared at the level. We we did succeed in the mission. Uh, it was a Pyrrhic victory, yes. I, I don't think any of the Marines survived. Correct. The, the ramp up seemed ridiculously odd. It's like it goes from being ridiculous easy to impossible. Yes, which is not what you want. But hopefully other people have better uh, trials than we did. That's Aliens, another glorious day in the core. On the topic of two-player vaguely skirmishy things that may or may not be within striking distance of MOBA-inspired, I got to play a game called Load, League of Ancient Defenders. This was published by Archon Studio in 2016. Archon Studio uh, actually got their start in the business as Protoss Productions during a effectively half-failed Kickstarter for Aliens vs. Predator miniatures game. And I think that there are some people that are still waiting for their stuff. Uh, I'm very sorry, and I, I would encourage you to stop holding your breath. At any rate, Load was a very derivative dice-chucking MOBA game that I nonetheless quite enjoy. I think it's good for some dumb fun. Lots of male gaze on a lot of the, the, the women figures. Some of them are okay, but a lot of it is, is, is pretty embarrassing. This is basically only for people who are hardcore into the MOBA derivative genres, and this is uh, very much kind of in the first wave of MOBA adaptations. That having been said, there's some house rules to bring it slightly more in line with some of the developments. For example, the alternating activation system that is reminiscent of the alternating activation system introduced in Roman Bones Second Tide, so the second edition of Roman Bones, can easily be backported into load, and that makes the game more dynamic and, and a little bit quicker. For those listeners who have been listening to recent episodes of Bloat, uh, you may have been familiar with my quest to make sure that I had the epic versions of all the load minis. The quest is completed, and this is the first time I got to play all of them. And so now you have the lovely additional little choice when playing Load. And that is, when has a hero done enough to, to warrant being upgraded to its epic version? Because they're in a different scale, they have better equipment. So one character in particular grew wings from into their epic... Fascinating. No gameplay difference, of course. And this was... I played with Chip the Third. This was one of the fascinating differences between me and Chip the Third. I found Chip the Third to be very stingy with his promotions. He would have characters, you know, kill a couple heroes and then bust down a tower. I'm like, do you want to upgrade the miniature? He's like, mm, maybe next round. I'm like, come on! Give them a bit of a cookie! They did a great job! But no, no, no. I, meanwhile, uh, was simultaneously more and less supportive uh, of, of my troops uh, near halfway through the game, I started in, uh, calling them scrubs. I felt that I'd been given nothing but scrubs. And no, I don't want no scrubs. A scrub is a mini that can get no love from me. I was very clear in the job posting. No scrubs and no people who chase waterfalls. And yet they sent me scrubs. Waterfall chasing scrubs. I nonetheless got to upgrade one of my miniatures. <laughs> But honestly, uh, Load was really a sort of a technical test for Archon Studios' new kind of minis production. They have this production called Unicast. It's kind of halfway between plastic and resin. Has some of the detail of resin, but more of the stability of plastic. Lovely, lovely sculpts. Lots and lots of detail. And uh, they put out a couple of games. This in Vanguard of War, which is a pretty derivative tower defense thing. Also good for, good for some stupid fun. And now they really don't make games anymore because they figured we could just make biddies for role players. And so that's what they've been doing for the past little while. They have this line of miniature starring called Dungeons and Lasers, and they've been pumping that out wave after wave. And I say more power to them. If you don't want to do game design, don't do game design. That's okay. But for what it's worth, I enjoy me some load. <laughs> I'm not going to claim that it's it's interesting game design, but I do enjoy just shoving mobs at someone's face and rolling dice to do damage. And sadly, it's uncredited. Oof. Good job, just good job, Archon. 
Archon made it, just the entity itself. Yeah, yeah. So that's Load, League of Ancient Defenders. Definitely one of those things that I would not recommend, but that I have a great time playing. Yeah, we played a lot of updated games this week. Because this one we're about to mention and others that we're about to... Anyway, moving on. Warpgate. This is designed by... Archam Nichapurov. And Wolf Designer. Same people from Guards of Atlantis 2. And Guards of Atlantis 1, even. And even. And Trickshot second season. And Trickshot first season. All of those games. All of those those games, all of those people. So what they've done, they've brought out uh, an expansion that replaces practically all of the cards, if not all of the cards. All the cards. And they're updated. And some of them are the same, but they, now we have the same backs, so you can't tell if they're the old cards or the new cards. Well, the most subtle difference is to the actual uh, action cards that people play. They all now have initiative values, so you can play the simultaneous uh, play variant, which is particularly recommended for high, high player counts. We haven't tried it yet, though. Ah, so what you're doing in Warpgate is that you have a little tableau in front of you that has times one, two, three, and 4. And you have a hand of actions, and you're playing them sort of Guards of Atlantis style, one per turn, and you're going to get multipliers on those cards depending on what round it is. And what you're doing with these actions is you're trying to take control of planets that are out there, trying to secure trade routes, trying to push people around, trying to create colonies, all in the hopes of of focusing on these uh, objective cards and trying to get the most points. The objective card system, I think, is the one that has changed the most between Warpgate and Warpgate Beyond. Uh, the objectives in Warpgate were always felt a little bit fluky in that they were all or nothing, and you would get them secretly. And so you couldn't prepare for them. You'd get them maybe midway through the game, maybe near the end. They were difficult to get appropriately enough because they were, they were potentially worth a huge amount of points, and indeed, dominant strategies and successful players tended to focus on at least a couple of objectives. But there was something about it that never really sat quite right with me. And the new system is, quite frankly, much better. They, the new system of objectives is there is a minor benefit for achieving some easier version and then a, a larger point benefit for achieving a more difficult version. And they are a lot of them are less in terms of have the most of something. There's still lots of most of, but some of them are just have enough of these kinds of planets. And so they feel, to me, overall, the sense that I get of the objective cards in the Warpgate Beyond is that I am more in control and that I'm less at the victim of a tough lift that is an all-or-nothing proposition. And that part I appreciate. The other major change is that the techs and the powers and the special heroes seem to have ramped everything up to 11 in a way that I find very, very satisfying. It's so bizarre. So far, this has happened three times with all three of a Wolf Designer's games. They released the base game, and I love it. <laughs> I love everything that Wolf Designer's ever done. And then they come up with a second edition that makes me look back at the first edition and say, why was I okay with that at the time? It's not that bad. It's not like, how could I have enjoyed such a thing? But it's like, wow, you've you've ironed out flaws that I didn't perceive. And Well, in the case of objective cards, that's not true. But in the case of the text... A lot of techs in the base game you got either because that was the only tech you could get or you got it just for the points because techs are worth points. They're all bananas now, which is wonderful. Uh, I'm very much a fan of a universe of very strong special effects, and Warpgate Beyond has definitely done that. As you said, there's techs. All your starting player boards have a special ability as well. Game doesn't overstay its welcome. Nice, fast, quick. And And the... the special power, not only the, the, are the techs over the top, but even the player boards, which stayed the same, are very interesting things that change up the whole game. Like yes. Mine, like, you usually have a whole hand of cards that you can choose from. Mine, I only got two every turn, and I had to make very interesting decisions. And the tech decks rebalancing 
made your faction stronger. Your faction in the base game, my perception was that it was a little weaker, but by virtue of the way that your faction works through action cards, you reshuffle your action card deck more frequently. Now there are a whole bunch of techs that trigger every time your action deck shuffled, and you made a very, very strong push at the beginning to get a couple of those, and you made very good use of them. It It was wonderful. Seeing new elements introduced into a base game that key off of and improve elements of the base game to begin with, those are my favorite kinds of expansions. Those are my favorite kinds of revisions. And I love seeing great games like Warpgate get even better with expansions like Beyond. I can't wait for the published version of Trickshot Second Season. And I'm a huge, huge fan of what uh, Artem Nichapotov and Wolf Designer have done with Warpgate Beyond. We, lo- we, we very much like the base game, and now I think it's even better. Agreed. Got to play a game called Code of Nine. This is a 10-year-old game designed by Backafire. This is the same group or person. I'm not even sure how many people use this pseudonym. It could be one person. It could be several who designed Tragedy Looper, a bizarre uh, deduction game that, as far as deduction games go, I think is one of the better ones, as well as Sakura Arms, one of our favorite two-player card battling games, if not our absolute favorite. And Code of Nine is a sort of pseudo-deduction worker placement game. It is very stripped down in terms of rules. You have three workers, you go to a place, and typically the actions are some version of pay some of the one currency of the game, get this token. It's like, all right. But what actually makes it work in an interesting game is the victory conditions are unknown to you at the start of the game. There are, of a deck of of upwards of 20 different victory conditions, nine are in play. One of them will not score, it's face-up visible on the table, but there are abilities that can cause them to swap. And so everyone knows at the start of the game a quarter of what the victory conditions are. And so a lot of the actions are about just plain looking at what other people's victory conditions are. But on top of that, you have to start making inferences, paying very close attention about who's getting what and why, and therefore trying to draft off of of what they're trying to do. I was very pleased as well in Code of Nine, because in starting round three-ish... They're just, again, within a very simple rule system, there was this possibility of this bizarre conspiracy of where I thought that I could conspire with Walker to trigger a premature end to the game. And little did he know that I had a card that said, if Walker, if anyone's holding the medal, which is a unique token that you just go by, get by going to a space and get the medal, they lose 50 points, which is a lot. And so I thought Walker and I were going to conspire and then I was going to laugh. But no, no, that did not happen. The conspiracy fell apart. It was it was enjoyable. I really liked it. I was shocked by how much I enjoyed Code of Nine. I was expecting a relatively procedural sort of a you know, place the actions, get the tokens, someone has points. But the deduction aspect and the amount of play in the simple action spaces were very impressive. What did you think, Walker? I think it was great. Uh, just like you said, it doesn't over, it was a little bit long for what it did. But, really? Well, I think it, on a second play, it wouldn't be so bad because there's a lot of just figuring out what all of these spaces did. Oh, that's true. But they the- all sort of boil down to the same thing. Like you said, yeah. you're going to get some sort of currency of what, not just to say currency, I guess some sort of token of which there's several and they're all going to lead to some sort of victory points or even negative victory points, depending on what cards come into play. So yeah. it's very much trying to get as much information as you can while at the same time collecting the tokens that you know of the cards that you have. And yeah. Yeah, because is. going back to the metal, the specific example from our game, it is worth minus two points by itself. Walker had a card that said, actually, it's worth five more on top of that. So it was net worth three. Walker got it early in the game and was sitting on it. Little did he know that I had the minus 50 point card. So it was evolving states of information. 
Yeah, the, the board, the information presentation, particularly on the board, is not well done. It's got this cursive handwriting that is difficult to read, more text than is strictly necessary, and it's very, very small. And so we were making, even people who were sitting in front of the board made reference to the back of the rule book just for the explanation of the and it's a, board it's spaces. A, it's a circle, too. So, of course, you know, everyone has half the board upside down. <laughs> yes. Now, I should point out, though, again, to emphasize how simple and straightforward Code of Nine is, I say rule book. It is a rule sheet. It is a <laughs> – it's just a folded-in-half piece of paper. It's that straightforward. I was I was very pleasantly surprised by Code of Nine. I'd, I'd be eager to play it again. I think with people who could properly internalize the board state, that's not a slide on the players. Again, that's a slide on the board. We're talking 50, 45, 60 minutes tops. Our game was only about 60 minutes after the rules explanation anyway. And that's Code of Nine, designed by Backafire and put out by Z-Man Games. I also got to play a game called American Psycho, a killer game. So this is designed by Dan Blanchett and put out by Renegade Game Studios. It is a trick-taking game that came out last year and plays a lot more like a trick-taking game that came out <laughs> several years ago. Just because... It didn't feel as though they did anything clever or interesting. They just added a whole bunch of stuff to a trick-taking game. It's just like, now if you lose, you get these cards, and now there's all these other things. It just seemed to be like more stuff, where these more things like uh, the Christmas... Ghost of Christmas. Ghost of Christmas, uh, Cat in a Box, uh, the crew, they all do very, very clever things that change up how a trick-taking game works. And this one just, for me, did not feel as though it did that. I will absolutely grant that the past few years have seen a lot of innovation in the trick-taking game space. And I will grant you that American Psycho doesn't measure up at all. I think one of the interesting things, though, is that whoever leads every trick, they have additional conditions that they can choose between one or the other. For example, you might have a card that says, well, whoever wins this trick instead of winning one card for their squirrel pile gets to win two. Or instead, they could pick the winner of this trick is whoever plays the lowest card rather than the highest card. They pick one of those, and that will help influence what happened. That part was potentially interesting, but the problem is, is that it helped sap one of the key virtues of a lot of trick-taking games, which is the flow. Usually, in trick-taking games, you set up the parameters of the round. Everyone internalizes what's going to happen in the round. That might change from round to round, right? Whether you're playing the crew or, indeed, anything else. But then trick to trick follows pretty organically one to the next. You might have some angst about what to lead. Well, I do anyway when trick-taking games. But in American Psycho, every trick was like, okay, that trick was done. Here's the new card. Read the two conditionals and decide, and then decide what to play. So that part was unfortunate, I think, really ruined the tempo. And I agree, the other mechanical aspects of American Psycho didn't measure up. It's also the case that I would highly recommend not playing this game with people who haven't seen the movie. Yeah, it very much had like sort of a Groundhog Day vibes, right? Where if you if you know the IP that it's based on, you're really very much going to enjoy this game. Right. Uh, and if you don't, so here's the thing, just for a little bit of context, and I'm not going to go into a full like, masterpiece theater thing here american psycho if you don't get the satire is tasteless and awful and super weird and not in a good way and it's hard to explain the relevance of someone playing the reservation at dorsia card to someone who hasn't seen the movie it's like well you know it's all about social status and this weird thing about it's very funny in context and everyone's like yeah sounds hilarious it really limits uh, the game and on top of that, there are some crude pencil drawings that are evocative of Patrick Bateman's 
uh, crude pencil drawings that are discovered later on in the movie. Spoilers, I suppose. And again, out of context, they're deeply inappropriate. And so uh, I I think I I will fault the designers for trying to generalize some of the aspects of American Psycho into something else. I think the satire doesn't translate super well, but it really doesn't translate well at all if you haven't seen the movie. So again, mixed company, no. Not for people who have seen the movie. I think I, I like hard pass. I think it's genuinely inappropriate for people who haven't seen the movie. And that's unfortunate because, you know, it's a reasonably, I guess by this point, it's a reasonably old movie. It's a great movie. I highly recommend it. Uh, and, you know, it understood what it was doing and it was a very delicately crafted satire. The trick taking version of it is not. <laughs> but it does come in a box about five times the size it needs to be. <laughs> well, there's a board. No. Trackers for the it comes board. in like a, a generic ticket to ride size box. It's not that big. It's smaller than a ticket to ride for box. A trick to ta- for a trick taking. <laughs> not that much smaller. Walker, do you like Huey Lewis in the news? So that was American Psycho, a killer game by Dan Blanchett and Renegade Game Studios. Finally, for me, got to play a game called Sabika. I'd been looking forward to this. We streamed this on Saturday. And this is designed by Herman Pimian, published by Ludo Nova. Uh, Herman Pimian is the one who designed Bitoku, the medium-heavy-ish game themed around Japanese folklore that we both enjoyed reasonably well and reviewed not too long ago. And it was on that basis that I decided to track down Sabika. Anytime there's a there's a new designer to me who puts out something that I like, I'm, I'm eager to try it again. This is uh, Sabika is a game about building the Alhambra during the Nazarid dynasty. And I have to give it credit, it clearly puts in more effort to historically situate the construction of the Alhambra than lots of other games, even those about constructing the Alhambra. (laughs) So this is not a simplistic tiling affair. This cares very much about the cultural significance of the poetry that was engraved and bedazzled, I use that in the generic term, on the... Uh, walls of various edifices within the Alhambra about uh, there were various levels of construction of the Alhambra and various uh, cultural complications with respect to the Nazareth dynasty and the local Christian population. And there's lots of uh, there's credit to the cultural consultants at the beginning of the rulebook. All of that I very much appreciated. Now, the gameplay itself. I was about to say. Yeah. Walker, why don't you I take I was about to say that none of what you're doing in this game is make, makes you feel like you're doing anything. Agreed. In my, in my opinion. <laughs> It is very much a straight up Euro game. You're, you are collecting these things. There's going to be, a, Mark's going to talk about something in the, in the topic, which I'm going to come back to speak about, but it's very much of just going through the actions. I very much enjoyed it. It really comes back to an interesting rondelle system where there is definitely blocking. Oof. There is definitely, uh, holding off on actions, waiting for people to move the, the core of why I love rondelle systems. Uh, very interesting game. Uh, sort of picking out your victory conditions at the end. The currency was so tight. The money, money is so excruciatingly scarce in Sabika. The way the rondelle system works is you can move, there are three different rondelles and you have four workers, two on the outer rondelle, one in each of the inner ones. And you first read the rules and okay, you can move up to two spaces for free. Every additional space is one denarii, and you pay an additional denarii for every worker in your space. Oh, okay, fine. Action selection will be a breeze. No, one denarii can cripple you. It's true. Overall, I enjoyed it. I'm going to keep it for a while and give it a whirl. It was a fascinating take on order fulfillment in that the orders were all super generic, and that turned out to be for the game's benefit. Normally, in games of this ilk, You have a whole bunch of different buildings you can construct, and this building wants one piece of marble and two wood, and you 
put that in and the car the points come out. In Sabika, it's like, oh, you want to build something? Eh, put whatever you want in. And then it's just every resource is worth a certain number of points. The entire game is built around a unified point conversion engine. And rather than stripping that of character, it rather opens you up in a way. And so you're not constantly worried about the precise combination and combinatorics of the goods you have. You can instead focus on the fact that you don't have enough money and there's never enough money. Yep, that's exactly what I was going to talk about later. It's like there is one one small section of the game that says you must start this off with a wood or a stone or something. But then after that, everything else is optional and and things are worth a certain amount of victory points. So you can start funneling these resources in, but it's totally your choice. It's not, you know, you have to have two cabbages and a, and a tomato or else too bad. It's like, if you want points, then you better have some extra resources to, to dump into it. Yes. And I enjoyed a lot of the trade-offs. I wish there had been a little bit more thematic coherency. The game of Sabika sprawls a little bit more than we'd like. So, for example, uh, Huey and I focused a lot on sending ships out because there's, 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 there's a fair number of somewhat disconnected mechanisms. But the game isn't really built around that because there's only one worker in the central rondelle that manages all the things relating to ships. And so we thought, oh, let's focus on ships. Oh, we can't really. The Sabika wants us to focus more on building the Alhambra, which is reasonable and legitimate. But suffice to say, I wish it had been a little bit tighter, a little bit more focused. Yeah, and and sort of more guidance on what things are worth. Because uh, there's this interesting sort of points every round type thing. The first round, they, wa- they wanted us to do poems. And we're going to get a certain amount of points for poems. And then that poem victory thing will score every round. But on the next round will be something else. And this will add to this queue of things that are going to score every round. Every round, round where they're scoring. There every round scoring, they're scoring every round. And that it was... I, I need to forestall the legions of um actuallys. There are people right now with their fingers hovering above the keyboards with their um actually reply right now. It's true. We know we don't score it every round, people. Thank you very much. We appreciate your listening. And those were really not worth very much. Nope. And and, and that wasn't clear. And you, and, it, yeah. and, it, and in that sort of mechanism, you'd think that that would be a big part of the scoring. Yeah. And, and upon reflection, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to not focus on those as much and <laughs> yeah. focus on these other things. And yeah. maybe the game will play differently if you're not focused Which, on which again, made me hope that the game, uh, made me wish that Sabika had been a little bit tighter, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about getting marble and glazed ceramic and then shoving marble and glazed ceramic in for three and four points respectively. And that's fine. That's a game. You don't then also need this other weird thing about shipping boats and this other thing about the Sultan's favor, which is mostly a distraction and these events that don't... Feeding your worker type mechanism. Feeding your worker type. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so I maybe one or two of those could have gone by the wayside, I think, and that would have been equally satisfying. Agreed. And that is Sabika. This episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice. It's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants.
American Giant makes the durable, comfortable spring closet staples you need for work, the gym, and even happy hour. Made in America. Designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I wanted this to be right next because Bamboo, same designer as Sabika and, oh, great. and Botoku, and it has very reminiscent parts of Botoku. It's the same sort of spirits, same sort of region uh it some people are saying it's like sort of a i don't want to say dumbed up but a lesser version of botuco but the more i read into it it seemed like it was very much a different game and very much it should be out very soon and definitely because we've enjoyed these last two games quite a bit i'm going to give bamboo a try because the art is sort of reminiscent of botuco which i love but also very cartoonish very interesting looking bamboo cyclades is an older game that that was out before and before now, time was recorded, I, I think so. And now they're going to do a big Kickstarter in the second quarter of this year. And for course, a new sort of consolidated edition. Yes, the legendary edition. So Cyclades was the sort of, you know, put out units, build the big metropolis type city, and it was sort of like the end game was very Precipitous. Odd. Precipitous. Yeah. You're not sure when it's going to happen. It could happen way before you think it was going to, but it has this fantastic action bidding system. And thankfully, it looks as though they're not going to change that. I think they might change up what the actions do a little bit, but other than that, so lots of things that are going to change, sort of building the map at every game, all sorts of different things. I don't want to get, because, you know, of course, it's a Kickstarter. Everything's up in the air. Yeah. And just not only because it's a Kickstarter, but because of Kickstarter's, Kickstarter's now it's even more so up no in the kidding. air. No kidding, yeah. And lastly for me, Holy Grail Games, unfortunately, has closed their doors. I'm sort of feel bad a bit because we did talk about uh, Copan, the Dying City. That was the latest game they just did on, on Kickstarter. And if people have backed it because they heard it here, unfortunately, it is now dead in the water. They're going to, the bankruptcy people are going to be trying to get people refunds. They immediately closed the pledge manager. People are saying it should have been closed a little sooner. You know, like planning for bankruptcy usually is a little more, you know, time involved than they knew. And it should have been closed a little sooner than it I was. Don't know. Sometimes bankruptcy happens like the end game of Cyclades. It, it's true. That's so, what they say in bankruptcy law. It's, it's unfortunate. Holy Grail Games did great games like Titan and other games like that. Yeah. It's so a, Grail Games went under. And now Holy Grail Games, I don't know, man. They've cited problems with uh, the distributor they've been using, like not 
putting out the games. They unfortunately it's rally. Reporting that, yeah, a lot of a lot of disappointment from distributors, a lot of shipping problems, a lot of fulfillment partners not holding up their ends of the bargain. It's it's really rough out there. And so that totally held back. Uh, rally Man, the new Rally Man, yeah, Rally game Man GT is now also in limbo. Yes, a lot of people didn't get their copies. Some copies escaped into the wild. So it's a scalper's paradise right now. It's a whole thing. Tragic situation for all involved, really. Finally for me, our 2020 game of the year, Cosmic Frog, by the iconoclast mad genius of board gaming, Jim Felly at Devious Weasel. The expansion is incoming. There's been details teased on Twitter throughout the months, very much like those incredibly sadistic designers of Phantom Division who keep showing pictures or little tweets about, oh, I, I got to do progress on the Give me Phantom Division. Yeah, fake news. Yes. Give me also the expansion to Cosmic Frog. Find Muck. Do you get it, Walker? Find Muck? Find Muck. Find Muck. It introduces psychic combat. Do you get the joke now? I got it. Okay, good. I'm glad. It's important to me that you get the joke. More frogs, more ways to mess with your opponents, more types of terrain, more ways to risk. More reasons to get it to the table. More reasons to get it to the Absolutely. Cosmic Frog, best game of 2020, fabulous game. Soon, more frogs. That more regurgitating frogs. And that is the news <laughs> and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to our topic of the week. You know, it comes from their gullet. It comes out, it doesn't yeah, say in the I gullet. You regurgitate so, the... I love both those words, gullet and regurgitation. <laughs> and so, yep, yeah, let's, so good. Let's not breeze past that. Game design trends. So what is it that you think... I, I, I'm thinking about this because I go through waves of criticizing certain types of games for being overly derivative. And it seems awfully negative to have that as being the springboard. <laughs> but there's this pattern that I've observed in a lot of, of game design elements where it's like, oh, well, this is fun. This is great. I see the virtues of a particular game design element. And then it's like, this is wonderful, great innovation. And then after a while, there's a tipping point, And then it's like, oh, this again? <laughs> yeah. Like I say, one, one big game will come out with a very interesting sort of mechanism. Right. And then you'll see all these things burst off of it, be polydominoes or or, yep, what, or zombies absolutely. or whatever. And then and then it'll be like, okay, enough already. Yeah. Or it'll be derivative. It'll just be the same thing absolutely. with a theme. Absolutely. So in terms of theme, this happens all the time. But I find that less interesting because I'm less equipped to talk about specifically how themes are overexploited or exploited in the same way. Uh, but in terms of game design elements, these are very much things that have my mind. So I don't know how you want to proceed generally, but I'd like to start off with a question about contemporary. If there's an overused game design element for most designs recently, like this year, past year, what would you say that would be if there is any? No, none is a perfectly acceptable answer. True. I think recipe fulfillment, I think, is what we're going to be talking about. I agree 100%. And, and Order fulfillment is absolutely, I think, the current overused game design element. I, I don't even want to say overused. I, I really want to go with just lazy design. <laughs> well, but that's just it. It's it, it tends to be... Yeah, I guess you're right. If it was overused but always done well, that would be a different story entirely. Because it's striking. It's very appropriate, I think. I didn't even know that this would this would coincide. The Aurus is Well Riders, which is an order fulfillment game, but it doesn't feel lazy. It doesn't feel derivative. It doesn't feel hacky. Whereas, uh, I, I'm going to pick on Bot Factory, all right? Bot Factory, for me, felt like order fulfillment the game in the sort of most trivial banal way. I'm not going to say that it's overly derivative because it is indeed an adaptation of an earlier game that did Order Fulfillment, and I can't comment on Kanban because I'm the last person on Earth who has not yet played Kanban. But given that there are only three different kinds of orders and nine different kinds of parts, 
and that's all you were doing in Bot Factory, it really made me think, oh yeah, order fulfillment is just all we do now. Really? I thought I thought Flamecraft would come to mind first. Oh, it's, it, yeah, oh, fl- oh look, my God. look, I'm not going to give Flamecraft any passes. It's absolutely there too. But it Flamecraft at least has the decency to make to, to try to work a little bit harder to deceive you into doing other things. <laughs> Especially in the way that the, the right building can pop up and suddenly someone is earning an incredible amount of points by not interacting with the order of fulfillment elements. Just on a quick side note about hiding things, because mm-hmm. I, I just have a, two things that we're not going to talk about is is uh hiding hiding the catch-up mechanic. So that's sort of like the new trend that's coming is, is the best way to hide it. Okay. Because in the old days, it was just like sort of a blunt <laughs> hammer. You know, if you're if you're in last place, get 20 points, you know. And now, now they understand that, A, people want the games close and, and no one wants to feel like losing. And B, people hate catch-up mechanics. So you sort of have to, you know, put a veneer of, of you know, hiding I feel like behind a, the scenes. I feel like A has been true for a long time, but I think B has gotten more pointed lately. I think the catch-up mechanisms has, have been very much on the mind, especially in terms of Euro design, uh, for decades. But I think the desire to be more subtle with it. Like, I'm thinking of games like Power Grid. Power Grid is incredibly blunt about its catch-up mechanism. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I'm not a huge fan of, of Power Grid, traditionally understood. But I agree with you. I think that is one of the design things that people are challenged, like struggling over. Someone might come up with something brilliant, and then maybe it'll be overused. <laughs> that's the new horizon. It's just going back to, to order fulfillment. I remember when talking about Voyages of Marco Polo, right? Voyages of Marco Polo was one of the first games I remember pointing to its use of order fulfillment and saying, you know what? Order fulfillment is a good way to give someone some guidance in the early part of the games about what they should do. And now, <laughs> and, and look at us now. Look at us now. I so jaded. <laughs> okay, so. I was just, I've also been thinking about what was, about similar trends, you know, the previous equivalences of order fulfillment. I wasn't in the hobby in the 1980s, uh, but I can definitely think of some of the, you know, recurring things that happened in the 1980s. When I think of the 1980s, I think of CRTs, uh, combat results tables, where, you know, you, you, you figure out combat factors and you couple, chuck a couple of dice and you get a result or a sing, single result. There are some games that I still play that do this, uh, primarily successors, but these even survive. There, there's one contemporary game walker, one of the most played games in the world that still has basically a CRT. Do you know what it is? I do not. 40K. Oh. Strength versus toughness, baby. True. That's basically a CRT, and it's pretty much one of the only quote-unquote contemporary games. Even modern versions of Games Workshop games tend to do away with that kind of comparison. I was shocked when Warcry still had the old-fashioned strength versus toughness comparison chart. But uh, we don't do charts anymore. Charts are definitely on the way out Yes, (laughs) as far as game design goes. So I think the next the next big thing in terms of of hobbyist gaming uh, can be traced. It's weird. I, I was looking at this just trying to again situate things historically. So when I think about the biggest influences or the biggest market movers in terms of the the nineties, I think of two games that were both released in ninety five. I think of El Grande and I think of Settlers of Catan. But those I don't think are really the ones that established the major design trends that you then got seen overused. When I think of the 90s, I think of auctions. I think of overdone auction games, right? So 1992's Modern Art, I don't know if they were if they were explicitly inspired by games like Modern Art specifically, but you look at the designs of the mid to late 90s, auctions everywhere. The joke was, 
for a long time that eventually you were going to have the, the some uh, a culmination of every Euro design element in a game where you auctioned off trains in ancient Egypt. And then someone designed that game and called it Cle- Cleopatra's Caboose. It took them a few years to get released, and by that point the joke was old, which is unfortunate, but... <laughs> There you have it. Which is weird, because, like, El Grande uh, having uh, really revolutionized, like, action cards and in combination with Area Majority, and Settlers having, you know, gone like gangbusters. We didn't see a huge glut in the late 90s of either Area Majority games, action card games, or negotiation games, which is which is strange. It was auctions all the time. You auctions, then do actions. Princess of Florence, Goa. Uh, just auctions everywhere, auction games, auction games, auction games. Uh, these resources are with points. How do the resources go into the game? Who gets what resources? Let's auction them off. There we go. Game is done. I remember we we talked. We both talked about this when reviewing Furnace because yeah. it felt like a throwback in the best possible way. Exactly. Right? Yes. Felt like a really, really, really good example of what you might have seen during the late '90s, but slightly better because of uh, a variety of clever design decisions. And then we have the aughts. And I still think the early aughts, we still, we're still kind of in the auction boom. The, the games that I think really disrupted and established the, the sort of game design trends in the early aughts, what, what would you say characterized a lot of what was going on in, in the, uh, shortly after the turn of the century? Uh, in the two, early 2000s, I've, I have two things here. I have uh, the Gates of Loang was our first sort of recipe fulfillment. in oh, Uwe that's Ro- right. The Uwe Rosenberg game. And he sort of picks up on a lot of trends because I also most thing that I want to talk about were Matt Gertz in two thousand and five puts out uh, Antiki, uh-huh. and that's when sort of like a little bit of boom of of Rondell starts, right? And and I think it's even this year a lot of the games we talked about today and a lot of the games that we've had our list, which I'll get into later, have Rondells in them. And this I find interesting because when I think of two thousand five and and eras like that, I think of two thousand seven's Agricola, I think of worker placement. Now, Agricola wasn't the first worker placement game. Arguably, the first one was Aladdin's Dragons in, in 2000. It was kind of a hybrid worker placement auction game. Kel Surprise! Uh, and uh, Kalos was in 2005, and that's also a, a worker placement game. But when I think of the trend that... Perhaps I was just too focused on trends that were driven into the ground, because for me, rondels can still be fresh in a lot of instances. Because when you look at the, the, the late aughts, oh my goodness, the, the number of forgettable worker placement games that got churned out in the immediate aftermath of Agricola. Just endless. And I think persisted for almost 10 years. We don't see a whole heck of a lot of them anymore. I mean, there's still bad worker placement games all the time. Like, yes. After the Empire, I maintain, is, is still one of the worst games I played uh, w- when reviewing this podcast. Uh, and a lot of things are mislabeled. It's like, as worker placement, it's really just action selection. They give you these tokens that they say you, they tell you that are workers, and and they say it's oh, a sure. worker placement game, but it's really at its core, it's just action selection. Well, sure, we've had this argument before with yes. respect to things like Scythe. It's like, but it's called a worker. It's like, well, you're placing a worker, but it's not really anyway. That's not the point. I mean, games like Agricola yes. were all over the place. I mean, you talked about Uwe Rosenberg. Uwe Rosenberg himself was a one man game design trend for worker placement. It's true. That <laughs> persists to this day, quite frankly. <laughs> and again, worker placement, when it first came on the scene, it was like, ooh, the turns are so quick. Ooh, there's blocking. Ooh, look at all this. And now we're like, yeah, yeah, sure, worker placement. <laughs> again, there are still great worker placement games. Yeah, they, they do do some extra things, like number of workers you get to play somewhere. And and now they use dice, which is my favorite thing. Dice is worker placement. Sure. And the value and the dice matter, stuff like that. Sure, sure. So in terms of rondels being a game design trend, 
Uh, I I personally feel, and tell me if you disagree. So for a while, Matt Gertz was more or less the only one doing it. So that being said, uh, okay, see, because even because they Matt Gertz hasn't put out many games lately. He's mostly been doing Concordia stuff. But Vladimir Suchi has been putting out games, and he too, back in two thousand and nine, started work with. Uh, with rondells he put out a game called shipyard oh yes i do remember shipyard shipyard was uh i think the first it was it it was very much part of my vladimir suki generalization where it's like oh yeah great fun for a couple games and then starts to feel samey the other the notable thing about shipyard have you ever played shipyard no i have not it, it it yo dog i heard you liked rondells it there are so many rondells in shipyard it is amazing and then and then around you know, 2012 in that area, then that's where it became, we're just going to make the whole board a giant rondelle. That's true. You're so, right. Right. We have the Tolkien, the Mayan calendar, Great Western Trail yep. and Icky where it was just the whole yep. board was a rondelle. You went around and you did your things. You're absolutely right. No, you, you've convinced me. I, I, I was, I'll tell you exactly why I was blinded to this as an overall trend, because for me, it's a Matt Gertz thing. And this is entirely my own bias, right? I've done some translation work with Matt Gertz. He's designed some of my favorite games. And so to me, as a mechanism, it is indelibly associated with Matt Gertz. And this is not fair. It is not accurate. Uh, I Even if you agree with me that I, that the best Rondell games are designed by Matt Gertz, he doesn't get to own the entire thing, right? And you're right that games like Great Western Trail and Iki uh, and even Sulkin have innovated and elaborated on how to use Rondells to influence action selection. So yeah, you, you've, you've completely convinced me. You're right. That advances a little bit more, right? We get to 2018 where we get Crusaders, right? Where we had this very interesting sort of- Oh, the Mandala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Up, upgradable sort Mancala, of- rather. Sorry. Yeah, Mancala. Upgradable Rondell system. And also that's when the first T game came out, which is Teotihuacan, which was once again, just a giant Rondell that you went around, sort of Rondell action selection. And this is where they introduced the dice system. Rondells with dice. Yeah, that was sort of like a combination of using Rondell and dice worker placement, right? You, both of those those threads that you're pulling out. You're very good at this. And then, and then, of course, what picked that up almost immediately was in the next year after that, Red Cathedral came out, which we yes. just talked about, which is exactly the same thing. Dice on a Rondell, very yeah. Very interesting dice ma- manipulation on a Rondell. Yeah. It's interesting. I, when I, all the, the, some of the other trends, and there's a couple more that I want to talk about briefly, uh, I feel have have been implemented in extremely lazy ways. When I think about rondelles specifically, I can't think of certainly not a glut of designs that have done it where I'm like, yeah, I, I, using a rondelle again is a lazy way to do action selection or whatever. To me, it's always been at the very least neutral to good. Uh, can you think of counterexamples? Or, no, or again, I, am I just blind? No, I don't think so at all. I think they... they... That even at their core, I think they're a fantastic way. They're 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 a way to make sure you don't get to do the same action multiple times in a row. They're yep. a way to make sure that there is a space you can make one action very powerful. Because in some games, if it's action selection, people are just going to take that over and over again. But if you put it on Rondell, they can only take it you know once every few turns because yep. they have to make their way around. It, and I guess you, people could also say that's just you know lazy design as well. But I really don't think it is. I just think it's a very interesting way to sort of space out uh, un equal actions. And again, just talking about the Rondell and Matt Gertz, I think you could even point to games like Concordia as a slight evolution of the Rondell as a way, as you say, to space out actions in the 
the, the the genre of game that we call deck management games, where your entire deck is your hand and you play cards and then you play another card and get all your cards back. It has very Rondell-esque features, although not with the spatial aspect. And again, uh, I think it's it's fair to attribute to Matt Gertz popularizing that. I don't think that that's been overdone either. I can't really think of it. Now, in terms of using dice in interesting ways, which is kind of another thing that Euro design goes in and out of. Sometimes Euros hate dice for a few years and then they rediscover them. You know, roll and writes are a huge design trend that I think we can probably point to Welcome to as really, you know, popularizing that recently. Although Knizia has been designing roll and writes since the 90s. Uh, especially if you look back at his decathlon and things like that. And he, he he's always been playing with dice. He loves dice. He's a mathematician. But when thinking in terms of a game, a Euro game that was using dice kind of sort of as a worker placement, but it was more drafting that I felt, oh, this is derivative and uninspired. I can think of Coimbra. And I can think of some other games where it's like, eh. Yeah. Sort so, of forced dice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the dice element, I think, sometimes has done well, sometimes has been overused. But rondelles, for me, remain fresh. I don't know why that is. I, I, maybe it's just because they're not as prevalent. Yeah, I really like the, the, the dice use in, uh, in Quarriers was very interesting as well. You know, sort of the deck building using the dice to, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah, but that, 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 that's a different thread yeah. of, of dice development entirely. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I wanted Quarriers to be, to be better than it was. I felt it was just a little too... I, well, that, I think if it was re-implemented today, I think it would have been it would be much more streamlined. I think would be better. Sure, sure. So just to finish off the absolutely the rondelles because it just brings us up to today. There was a game called Corrosion. I really wish I uh, got you to play it. I'm hoping to pick it up again because I really want to show that to you. It's sort of like a your rondel sort of forced around, and you got to sort of plan ahead and get mechanisms out in front of your thing. That's continuously corroding your machine as it goes mm. around and that's also paired up with very interesting card play and then games that we've talked about not only today but just very recent we have sabika woodcraft yeah. uh tiletum and terracotta army which you know brings this sort of rondelle to the next level you know now we have triple layers we have rondelles that turn and sort of change the actions up what they can do and they let you to uh sort of manipulate not only with dice, but with resources, which which actions you can take on the rondelle. Far be it for me to enter into this marvelously illuminating discussion, quibbling about genre distinctions. But I think of Teletum and Terracotta Army in particular as worker placement games where the worker spaces happen to be on a circle rather than a rondelle. For me, the, the key element to a rondelle is the movement, right? I put my worker or my action selection or my pawn or whatever or my die in this spot in a previous round. And by virtue of having placed it here in a previous turn, that influences where I can go on my future turns. You don't have that in those games. The the wheel is just a way to to slightly randomize or influence what the actions what the worker placement action does, but I'll grant you it is nonetheless can be attributed to part of that overall design philosophy of reimagining worker uh, reimagining action spaces in a wheel like element. So when I think of the overused sort of tired mechanism that predated uh, order fulfillment, I think of tableau building. I think of the legions of tableau builders that came in the wake of Terraforming Mars. And this too, kind of a, a, a bit like worker placement to even a greater degree, uh, tableau builders have been in Euro design for a long, long time. I mean, uh, I was actually, I, I keep getting shocked at the time period between Race for the Galaxy and Terraforming Mars. 
Uh, Race for the Galaxy was the big tableau builder that I remember playing, but it didn't seem to inspire the same number of derivative also-rans. Like the number of tableau builders in the wake of Terraforming Mars, massive. You, you know, in various combinations, you know, first you auction and then you have a tableau, or this is a worker placement game with tableau building, like you see in Everdell, or any number of other... Oh, jeez. Let's remember Hansa Tatanako was 2009. Yeah. But, no, but that's just it. I Okay. I, I'm glad you brought that up, frankly. Because to me... One of the great things about Hansa Teutonica is I can't peg it into a genre. Uh, there's n- uh, what's its primary mechanism? Uh, uh, it's a it's a game like Hansa Teutonica. Seriously, it's true. In in a in a hobby where we can categorize and divvy things up ad infinitum, yeah, there are things you can talk about. You can talk about action improvement. You can talk about upgrades. You can talk about spatial blocking. You you can say it's a root connection game. None of those fully articulate what's going on. A little bit of tableau building, you could say. I just, we've had this disagreement for years, Walker. <laughs> I don't think it's a tableau builder when you're removing cubes from your display. I don't think that that characterizes it. For me, a tableau builder is when you're acquiring it, new bits. It, incre- it gives you new bits by removing the cubes. <sighs> yeah. Okay, fine. Whatever. Put it to the side. <laughs> we'll agree to disagree on whether or not how the Tatanka is a tableau builder. I say it's not. You say it is. Okay, fine. We'll put it off to the side. But the core, like, Hansa Teutonica didn't feel derivative when it was published, even though it felt like a throwback to earlier elements of like stripped down Euro game design. And it hasn't really been copied in any major way, which is great because it, it stands alone and it's genius. But oh my goodness. Do you remember Alien Artifacts, Walker? Or have you shoved it for Oh life? my lord. I know. Just when you make a bad tableau builder, it's so bad. It can be terrible. There are lots of great tableau builders, and many of them even predate Terraforming Mars. Like we prefer 51st State Master Set. Uh, which, I mean, even if you ignore the fact that it's it's an evo- evolution of 51st State, uh, and I prefer Race for the Galaxy, and I prefer Innovation, all of them predate Terraforming Mars, but just in the wake of Terraforming Mars, so, so many. And this is to say nothing of, uh, you know, again, going back in time, the great earthquake that was 2011's Risk Legacy, and the massive push, which we still feel today, especially on Kickstarter, of everything needing to be a campaign. Campaign and or legacy, just yeah. having the ongoing effects, per which game. which even got which got much worse in the the wake of Gloomhaven. Right, it wasn't just the legacy elements introduced by Davio, but uh, but Gloomhaven had such a massive effect on the market. I can't help but feel that people on Kickstarter are still chasing those Gloomhaven dollars. Now, sometimes you get surprise hits. I remain shocked at how great Oathsworn is. <laughs> okay. It's true. Who could think? But you see so many things on crowdfunding and elsewhere where where they're clearly like, please think we're like Gloomhaven, please. Yeah, yeah. This massive campaign with figures and endless play. Yeah. And I remember, again, Legacy to me, I think, have the shortest shelf life for my enthusiasm. Because Risk Legacy, I remember having tons of fun with. Like, we're opening boxes. Look, there's an entire new faction there. Wee. And that was about it. I I even got tired of it midway through Pandemic Legacy Season 1. So I think I'm a little bit out of step. I haven't even looked into the new Legacy Risk. There's a whole new Risk Legacy box, and I haven't even cared. We're we're well past caring about campaigns now, but I think part of that is a professional hazard. I don't know if if, if back in the the pre-podcast days if we'd have more endurance for campaigns. Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. It's tough to tell. But there are a lot of... There, there is, there are too many campaign games in the market for dedicated hobbyists to be able to consume. I think almost that was that could have even been one of the reasons why I started. Right, it's just like you see all these camp. We had sure. campaigns on our shelves. Like, oh, yet another. Are yep. we going to start another one again? Yep. Yeah. 
I'd like to thank you, Walker. Coming into this topic, I approached it purely from a negative way. Now, granted, I would always be uh, conscious of the counterexamples of good versions, right? Like, there are still great worker placement games being done. There's still great auction games. All of these categories of games that I say are overdone, you still see great examples of these being released, right? Again, Whale Riders is an order of fulfillment game, and I'm tired of order of fulfillment games, but I will happily play Whale Riders at the drop of a hat. Uh, but, you know, I approach it primarily negatively, and I think that your, your uh, uh, little historical sketch of rondelles and sometimes more specifically Dyson Rondells, is a great example of a long-standing trend that uh, I, I haven't gotten sick of yet. And so thank you for that. I appreciate that that little burst of sunshine. I'm happy to help. The one last thing I want to talk about, about trends in game, which is great that they now introduce, is inclusion. And, and it's been massively uh, across the board. Everyone is definitely trying their best, and I'm very happy to see the results. And it is slowly but surely being done. Yeah, just the other day, Chip the Third remarked on the rulebook and reference works to Order of Nine, saying how jarring it is to see the male pronoun used as neuter. And that's a very, very recent trend, uh, just in the past few years or so. And it's great. It's not strictly game design, but you're absolutely right. Much more important than the fact that auction games are overplayed is the fact that more or less, the industry is now on the right page in terms of inclusion, in terms of representation, in terms of acknowledging the fact that gamers are not the monolith that they have been misperceived as for a very long time. Thank you, Walker. Another excellent note. And on that positive note, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information on our glorious website. Everything about swag is glorious, but our website especially so. It burns your eyes with the brightness. SoWrongGames.com, specifically in this case, SoWrongGames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us. We'll get back to you if we can, and we love hearing from you. Thank you so much for deciding to spend your time with us. We hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.